You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I mean, this is one of the joys for me of knowing about this tradition is just being out and about on the beaches, in the rivers, out in the bush and just engaging or interacting with objects that you find. So it's that idea of found sound that really, really deeply appeals to me. You don't need to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on musical instruments when you can just find them on a beach. Jen Kattermole is a lecturer in ethnomusicology at the University of Otago in Dunedin on New Zealand's South Island. The Maori and their ancestors were the indigenous population of New Zealand, and although Jen is not a Maori, she has taught herself to play many of the traditional Maori musical instruments. Where I grew up was a, a small township in Canterbury, which is up the coast from here. It was a very kind of white community. Uh, We had one Māori family, uh, but I was really lucky in primary school that we had teachers who told us Māori legends and stories, Māori weaving, and so that was kind of a big part of my young upbringing, even though Māori culture wasn't a very strong presence in my community. And then later on, um, my family were amateur geologists, and so I got interested in Māori carving. And then skipping forward in history to 1998, when I was a student here at Otago University, and one of the main knowledge bearers of this tradition by the name of Richard Nunns came to give a single class. And, you know, I just remember him standing at the front of the classroom and he had this black velvet cloth that he spread over the table. And then he just laid out all these incredible cultural treasures And he just spent the next 50 minutes talking about stories and anecdotes and playing the instruments and telling about them. For me, it was kind of a combination of lots of things that I was already interested in. You know, it was Māori culture, it was carving, it was music. And I just found them incredibly, incredibly beautiful. There's this one story told about being over in Patagonia, so he does a lot of touring internationally with these instruments. And the hotel that he was staying in was just across the road from the beach and the beach dropped off really quickly so it was down into a deep trench which meant that the whales could come in really close to shore and he just describes this experience of these three whales that came in close put the heads out of the water to listen to him play and I was thinking well any instrument that will allow you to (laughs) have those kind of experiences and those really kind of profound connections and communications with other things that are around us and that share our world um, like how amazing is that you know mind officially blown (laughs) so yeah stories like that just really had me hooked 
With a small grant from the head of her department at the university, Jen commissioned the creation of a number of Maori flutes and began to amass a collection of instruments, shells, bones, and rocks that were all playable. The challenge was to learn how to play them. I was really hung up for a start because I I knew, like from what scant knowledge I had and a bit of research that I've been doing, I, I knew these instruments were profoundly sacred for Maori. You know, they are living, like literally living descendants of Ngā or Māori deities. Um, you know, the powers who kind of control and regulate the raw powers of nature. I just didn't want to stuff up or put a foot wrong. You know, I was scared of, of kind of infringing uh, their tapu, their sacredness. So I tried reaching out to Māori colleagues locally, you know, people around the university, to ask these questions and to get a bit of guidance. And basically just nobody wanted to talk <laughs> or had the time or... So, well, you know, I was, I was a bit kind of hung up, you could say. Well, Jen got hold of a book which offered a few suggestions on how to play Maori flutes. The very, very end of that book, he doesn't go into a lot of detail, but he does, I think there's about 10 steps where he describes how to use what is called the, like the cross-blowing method or the oblique embouchure, which is used to play the majority of particularly the flutes. And um, I just read that, sat down, and just experimented until I got it. <laughs> and a lot of these taonga, for me, it was exactly the same. Some of them have been a real challenge. And ones like, like bird callers, um, even after, I mean, YouTube videos and watching things like that is also a really great source of information. But in those sort of videos, you can see what people are doing. But even if you try and imitate, sometimes you still can't. And so most of these instruments, it's literally a combination of written instructions, listening, experimenting, you know, like literally the instruments are teaching you how to play them, mm. you know, just purely because you're having to experiment. And actually that's kind of, it's a very liberating thing. Um, it's kind of a big emphasis within people who who kind of play Taonga Port, or I guess where it's not a prescribed kind of aesthetic I guess when it comes to playing technique because every single instrument is unique no two are the same since learning how to play Jen has been in contact with a number of Maori musicians who have encouraged her efforts and offered instruction unfortunately we don't really have very much by way of recordings of you know the old way that that these were played these instruments were because of their tapu, their sacred status, they, their performance tradition really came under threat when a particular act of parliament was passed back in 1907. So that was called the Tohunga Suppression Act. You know, Tohunga is a, a term that covers a variety of experts in particular aspects of cultural knowledge. But this act was particularly aimed at suppressing the activities of Tohunga who engaged in, in healing practices. 
this act, the Tohunga Suppression Act, made being a Tohunga illegal. A lot of these instruments uh, fell into disuse or their practice kind of went underground or, or it changed. Um, some became children's toys, whereas in the past they might have been used in healing or other sacred uses. The Tohunga Suppression Act was repealed in 1962, and since that time, Māori traditions have begun to flourish again in New Zealand. As if to celebrate that fact, on Jen's table there is a remarkable variety of instruments. Some are clearly recognizable as flutes, but there are also snail shells, crab legs, and what appear to be ordinary rocks with holes in the center. This is one of the things with Tonga Porto is you're just trying to find anything that's got a hole in it <laughs> and then seeing if you can play it. <laughs> and sometimes it might be, you know, like a, a hole in a rock that's part of a big rock face or a boulder or on a cliff or something and you, you literally you just line your face up with those holes in the cliff and you create this amazing music. So not all of these kind of tongue are portable, some have to remain <laughs> in the environment where you find them, but quite a lot of them are ones that you can pick up, pick up and play and this is one of them. So. What you were just describing, coming across a place which is sonorous in this special way, which most people wouldn't even think of, mm. it's not portable, it's unique to that place. This could be one of the uh, emblems of a sacred space. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, often this is, this is for me, it's that, en that engagement because it's all about environment. You know, these are, as I say, living descendants of the Atwa, and the Atwa are... They, they, they were the originators of, and they still regulate the natural powers of various aspects of the environment. The ocean, the forest, the winds, anything that belongs as part of creation. The, these are part of that, obviously, and they, they speak to that. And, you know, it's part of, you know, as a player, that's, it's that communication, and it's the giving and receiving of those communications that the, these are kind of conduits or channels or pathways that, that occurs. Do you see yourself as a conduit as well? I mean, clearly mm. you're not Maori, but mm. you're the one who is giving voice to these instruments. So do, how do you see yourself, your place mm. in, in this, your role? I, well, the thing is, I, I don't see myself as a tohunga. Uh, what is a tohunga? So tohunga were, were those cultural experts and, and yeah. including experts in spiritual matters. Yeah. So tohu, tohu is signs, like omens. You know, the, the voices of these tonga, and especially actually those sort of whistling, kind of on the edge, on the cusp kind of sounds, they they in particular are seen as being communications from, from the gods, from the goddesses from the ancestors, which is again why these are so sacred, yeah? But I, I don't see myself as being able to understand what those tohu, what those signs actually mean. So there's something that for me gets 
slightly lost in translation. But having said that, I still have a really profound sense of connection to the environment when I play. And when when I play and when I'm in a in a place and there are some places that are special for me where, where I go and play and I don't can't quite articulate even what makes them special. They they just are these special places. And and you kind of you tune into your environment. You literally tune in. And so, you know, you're you're responding to what you hear using voices that are similar to what you hear. And then what gets interesting is when that communication becomes two ways. Can you talk to me about that? What's that like? Well, kind of, and it's, you know, it's it's a sense of, it's, it's a rhythm in the sounds. And it's about that, that give and take, like a call and response kind of thing that happens. And mostly that tends to happen with birds. You know, the birds are very curious and <laughs> sometimes, sometimes very territorial as well. Um, but, but they will, they will converse with you. But it's also in um, the kind of rhythms with the wind, you know, the pulses and gusts and, you know, where you're sort of fitting in around those kind of sounds, where it does feel very two-way. Or when you're sitting beside a river where the water's just trickling over the stones and you do have that, it's just that melodic play where you're, you're picking up and you're hearing the, the melody that's there and then you're responding to that. And again, we, we sometimes, you get that sense that actually there's a, there's a communication going on there, that it's not just a listening and a, and a, and a playing, it's, it's actually something that's going both ways. My thanks to Jen Cattermole. To see pictures of Jen playing some of her musical instruments, please visit our Facebook page. I'm Jim Metzner, and this is The Pulse of the Planet.